praying, and it is his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Praise the Lord. So thankful uh, for God's work tonight. All right, let's get at it. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35 and going all the way up to and including verse 38. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word in front of you, just put up your hand right now because our ushers are coming forward and we want to put a Bible in your lap. Okay, so just put your hand up nice and high. We want to put one in your lap. And if you do not have a Bible at home, then please keep that as a gift from us to you that you can continue to study God's word at home. You will not regret it. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is life-giving. And in keeping it, by the power of the Lord, there is great reward. Amen? All right, so let's open up Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Now, I want you to recall something as we go through this series called Discovering Hope, which is really laying out a blueprint for not only what the mission of God is, but how he calls his church to fulfill that. And as such, what this church, Hope Ottawa, is committed to, these six distinctives in fulfilling the Great Commission. Here's a key theme that's been running through the whole series. We need to lock in, and it is this. Write it down. The work of God is only accomplished by the power of God. Say that with me, church. Eyes up here, say it with me so we all get it. Ready? The work of God is only accomplished by the power of God. Jesus made this very clear. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, a crucial work of what he's entrusted to his church, what he's entrusted to us here at Hope Ottawa and that is essential to see the mission of God fulfilled is this. Ready? And this is going to make some people a little squirmy. But here's the truth. We are called to be his witnesses. We are called to evangelize. It's not an option for us as believers. Mark chapter 16, 15 makes this very clear where Jesus tells the disciples, go therefore and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Pretty clear right there. Now, you may hear that call to be a witness for Christ or to evangelize, a lifestyle of evangelism, and you may hear that and you may immediately be tensing up. You may be shifting in your seat a little bit as the fear starts to come in or the anxiety starts to creep in. Maybe right now you hear that call to evangelism and you're feeling timid. You're like, that's just not something that I feel comfortable doing. Or maybe some of us here in this room are like, yeah, no thanks, that's for someone else who's more gifted in that, that's not me. Or maybe some of you are at the other end of the spectrum, you're like, yes, evangelism, and your danger is you're so tempted to rely on your own strength to do it. Right? So regardless of what end of the spectrum you're on there, or anywhere in between, I want to encourage us with this. Be encouraged. We do not, everyone say, I don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. And if we are saved in Jesus Christ, if you are here tonight and you have repented of your sin and confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I have some just incredible news for you from Acts chapter 1. It is this, God gives you, God gives us the power to be his witnesses. 
because the work of God's only accomplished by the power of God. And so God has given and will continue to give us all the power to be his witnesses. You say, uh, can you just like stoke my faith a little bit? Where's that coming from? Just flip over to act, keep your thumb in Matthew chapter 9 and flip over to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I love this. Look what it says here. Acts 1 8. Jesus is about to ascend. He's risen from the grave. He's about to leave his disciples and he leaves them with this. He says, but you will receive power. Come on. Now, that's just not like a little bit of power, maybe do a sort of job, maybe a half job. Actually, the Greek word for power there is dunamai, and it's where we get our English word dynamite from. Boom, power. You will receive power, look, when the Holy Spirit, by his spirit, we witness courageously. See that? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here's why we get the power. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that includes Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Amen? Come on. Because there are many in this city that are still the Lord's and they don't know it yet. By his spirit, we must witness courageously. And you say, well, is it really a big deal? Isn't it a lot easier just to kind of stay in our comfort zones? Well, how many of you like statistics here? Anyone like stats? Okay, cool. Some of you are like snooze. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. Here's some stats. This is from 2019 Christianity Today, according to their latest uh, survey. It says this. 79%. Now, keep in mind, this is before COVID-19. Watch this. 79% of unchurched people, that is, not followers of Jesus Christ who don't attend church, watch this, say they would engage in a faith conversation if they were asked. 80% of people, almost, will engage in a faith conversation. Now, that is before COVID. How much more now? When so many things, jobs, finances, possessions, health has just been ripped away and they're looking for hope. Where do I turn? Because that stuff's not working. How much more now, huh? So that's the good news. People are ready to engage. They're willing, they're hungry. But here's the bad news. Look, keep reading. But only 39% of Christians have shared the gospel in the past six months. That's less than one out of every two of us in this room. Eighty percent ready to hear, thirty-nine percent willing to go. This means that over 60% of so-called Christians, those identifying themselves as Christ followers, are not telling our world about Jesus, even on an annual basis. 60%. You You think the call to the courageous witness is needed in the church? You bet it is. Here's the truth. Eyes up here. A.W. Tozer said this. He said this. 
A scared world needs a fearless church. This world is scared. Look around us. This world's scared. The next war, the next virus, the next recession, the next government, like what's going to happen? Like all this. Fearful, anxious, scared, and it needs a fearless church. They are ready to engage and desperate for hope. But here's the problem, as you saw right from there. There are many people, even though there are many people desperate and willing to hear the gospel, there are increasingly fewer and fewer people courageously sharing it with them. For a whole variety of reasons. Some of the ones we share in this room right now. Fear. What will it mean for that relationship? What will it mean for my job? Well, what will it mean for my status with that person? What about this? Uh, fear or, here's another one, comfort. We just love our comfort so much. It gets a little uncomfortable sometimes, doesn't it, when you think about stepping out to share your faith. But man, we love our comfort, and we'll just stay in our comfort zone right here. Maybe we've developed a heart that is apathetic towards the lost. Yeah, I'd like to see him come to Christ, but maybe through someone else. And we're not moved with compassion anymore. Maybe uh, often we care more about the glory from man than the glory of God. Well, I, I want to look good and keep a good reputation with that person. I want to be invited to the parties and the block parties and the progressive dinners in the neighborhood. I want to do all that. That's the glory, that wanting the glory from man. Jesus said, you've received your reward in full. And ultimately what it boils down to, loved ones, I've been very convicted of this in my own life this week. It's a lack of love for the Lord and for the people he's created and a greater love for self. That's what it boils down to. Every time. And what's the result? Well, just look at those stats right there. The church, corporately and individually, is failing in its mission to make disciples. And as a result, people are dying and going to spend eternity in hell never having heard the gospel. Every day. May it not be so here, loved ones. May it not be said of this church of our lives. Here's the big idea we need to lock into today from this text, nice and clear. Write this down. Because Jesus loves the lost, he's so passionately in love for the lost, because Jesus loves the lost, we must witness courageously to them. We must witness courageously to them. And here in our text, we're gonna see two truths that we must increasingly live by in his power. By his spirit, if we are to live lives of courageous witness for Christ and see him draw others to himself through it by his power at work in and through us. You ready to go? The hour is urgent. Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to stand and we're going to read God's word together, recognizing its authority. Let's go. Matthew chapter 9, 36 to 38. Kids, nice and loud, on your feet, open the books. Let's go. Matthew 9, 36 to 35 rather to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Hear the word of the Lord and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. The first thing we see from verses 35 and 36 is this. A life of courageous witness will increasingly, ready, here it is, possess Christ's motive for witness. Possess Christ's motive for witness, which is what? Compassion. Compassion. See it right in the text. Here's, Here's the challenge for us from these first two verses. Compassion for the lost is the heart of witness. There is no courageous witness without compassion. Jesus' compassion. It is the heart of witness. Here's here's the thing. Do you and I see the lost as Jesus does? That's the question. They're all around you. In your schools, kids, in your schools, your classmates, your teachers, Loved ones in our neighborhoods, we pass them at the grocery store, on the street, in our workplaces. Do you and I see the lost as Jesus does? Here's here's another question. Do you even want to see them like that? Do you even want to? Because it will move you to action. Let's get our context. Here we are, 30 AD, first century. Jesus is 30 years old. 30 years old, he's at the start of his teaching ministry, and he is ministering in Galilee with his disciples. Okay, look at this. Here he is. You'll see a map on there. Jesus is ministering in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And look at verse 35. It sets our context up well. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages up there, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. See, Jesus is in the the synagogues. Okay, what's what's a synagogue? Okay, I can't wait to show you this. So here's two pictures of synagogues in Galilee. That's the aerial shot of one, and then here is the close-up of the synagogue in Capernaum. And I've been there multiple times, sat on those benches there. It's truly beautiful. And so here, here they are, Jesus is in the synagogues, and this, these are the places where the Jews assembled for prayer and listening to teaching from the Old Testament, okay, from the rabbis. And what's he doing in the synagogue? Go back to verse 35, eyes in the text, look at, so you see where it's coming from. He is proclaiming, Greek word proclaiming means to preach or herald the gospel of the kingdom. Now, If you've been a Christian a while, maybe you've been to some churches and you're just kind of like, you know, I hear that word gospel all the time. Let's not assume everyone's on the same page. Here's what the gospel means. It means the good news of Jesus Christ. The truth of who he is as the Messiah, the only Messiah and the Savior. And the truth of how he came to earth to save sinners. And so Jesus is in the synagogues right here. He's preaching how all of the Old Testament points to him. All of it points to him. But that's not all he's doing. He's not just preaching. Did you catch it? Go back to the text. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing. He's healing. He's not only preaching, but he's healing every disease and affliction of the people when they came to him. And he used this as a means to authenticate who he was as the son of God. 
ultimately God himself, and that he was authenticating the message of the gospel, that it was true. And we see this in the early church too. As the church was breaking into the world, he gave special power to the apostles for signs and wonders. Now look at verse 36. There's our context. Now when he saw the crowds who were all gathering around him, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, I was just in pre-service prayer right there. Does that not describe our culture today? Harassed and helpless. Harassed because of your skin color. Harassed because of your social status. Harassed because of your um, preferences on masking, not masking, vaxxing, not vaxxing. Harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Let's open our eyes, loved ones. And you will see it all around. Saying your identity is based in who you are and how you dress and what you look like and what you do. Harassed. And Jesus sees all the crowds. By the way, that word crowds there in the Greek means a great multitude, a mob. We're not talking like five, ten people. We're talking about a multitude of people clamoring to get to him. And he's filled with, not judgment against them, he's filled with compassion for them. Now, the whole text hinges on that word compassion. So write this down. Here's what this term compassion means from verse 36. It means this. He had pity for them. It means a heart that goes out to someone when you're deeply moved in your innermost parts for them. It's your deepest parts. What that means is Jesus is moved to the core. And it actually means agony. He looks at the people who are harassed and helpless, clamoring for hope and all these other things, what they can get. He looks at how they're harassed by their religious leaders, just heaping burdens on them that are not biblical, that are not scriptural, that are not pointing to them the hope that they have in him like they're supposed to be doing. They're shepherds. And he's moved to agony for their soul. Are you and I? Are we agonizing over the lost? When's the last time we agonized over the lost? Harassed. Helpless. See, Jesus is not just here being like looking at them and saying, yeah, I feel bad. I wish they would just put their faith in me. You know, like, sure, I got some pity for the lost. He's in agony over the state of these people that, here's, here's the deal, he's created them in his image. And he loves them passionately. He loves them passionately. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we see right here this beautiful picture of Jesus' humanity, isn't it? He's just moved to agony. Here, let's try to help bridge the gap here. You ever see someone that you love so much suffering, hurting, and in pain, and you would do anything to help them? That's just a taste. 
of the agony for the loss that Jesus has. And it breaks your heart when you see that. Why? Why is he moved to compassion? Keep reading. Go back to the text, the last half of 36. Because they, the crowds, were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The term harassed and helpless there means to be weary or worn out, distressed, and cast down. Look down on in society weary and worn out from trying to find their hope and all these other things they cannot give it. It means to be completely helpless in being able to save themselves. And if you're here, hear the word of the Lord from my heart, desiring for you to hear the truth today. If you are not saved in Jesus Christ, just hear God's word. You are completely helpless to save yourself. You're just helpless. You can't do enough right things. You can't pray enough prayers. You can't come to enough church services. You and I are helpless to save ourselves. And we are helpless to do anything of our own strength. Just like the Israelites here, helpless to do anything in their own strength to get out of their dire situation they were in before God. And they are. Like sheep without a shepherd. And you say, well, why is this such a big deal? I mean, isn't Jesus going to kind of get around to ministering to that? Listen, why such a big deal? Well, as one commentator put it, just picture, the, look at the illustration from the text. Um, what happens to sheep without a shepherd? You think of a flock of sheep. What happens when there's a flock of sheep, but there's no shepherd? Well, I did some research. Without a shepherd... Sheep are vulnerable to any attack. You're vulnerable. And here's the other thing. Sheep cannot find food that will sustain them and they will die without a shepherd. See, sheep without a shepherd points to people who are in, get this, great spiritual danger. And without the resources to escape from it on their own. That's your neighbors. Those are your coworkers. Maybe that's you tonight. These are your classmates, kids, in grave spiritual danger and absolutely no ability to save themselves. See, his agony is about their spiritual danger and their desperation. See, Jesus sees this. He sees his loved ones weary and worn out from trying to save themselves and running after the things of this world they think they're gonna satisfy and lead to their deliverance, their salvation, but can only come from him. And he sees the religious leaders who are unloving, uncaring for these sheep, failing in their responsibility to lead them through his word, just heaping on more rules and judgment over them, leaving them hopeless. He looks at them and he says, but I love you. Maybe you're here tonight and you're like, well, I've done too much. You know, I, I can't be loved by Jesus. That's a lie from the pit of hell over your life. Look at, look at the heart of the Savior for the lost, for you 
and for me. He says, I love you. He's not looking on you with this condemning judgment. He's looking on you with the beauty, beautiful compassion. He says, I love you. I created you. I knit you together beautifully, just how I wanted. And I will shepherd you. And I see you hurting. And I see you running to those things. And I see you harassed. And I see you helpless and suffering and you're in great danger and you don't even know it. But you know something's not working. You know it. You can feel it. You know something's not working. But you don't know the danger you're in. He looks at them and says, your spiritual healing is more desperately needed than anything else. And I love you passionately. Right here. He just says to you and I tonight, I love you passionately. I created you for my glory, and it is not my desire that any of you should perish in hell. It's not my desire. Will it happen? Yes, for refusal to come to him. But it's not his desire. To perish in hell for eternity apart from me. And today, billions of people, maybe even in this room tonight, some of us, are in distress and weary and worn out, suffering and helpless to save ourselves, and desperately trying to find peace and satisfaction and ultimately hope and salvation from the things of the world that cannot give it. Here's a few to get us thinking about that. What do you run to? Here it is. Sex, pornography, rampant. Drugs, on the rise, absolutely rampant. Money, gotta cling to it. How much is enough? Always a little bit more. Jobs, have to keep getting to the next rung and I'm gonna burn the candle at the both ends and sacrifice my marriage and my children on that altar. Control, I have to control my life or I will not have security. And all the time, Jesus is agonizing over them. Are you and I? See, the heart of witness is a deep love for the lost. Question, loved ones. Do you and I see the lost as Jesus does? You've just seen how he looks at them. How's that for you and I when we see them? Your coworkers. Think the faces right now. Just close your eyes for a moment. Kids, close your eyes. I want you to think of your classroom. Look at your neighborhood. Look at all those faces that you pass by that God has strategically put you there by his sovereignty. Close your eyes. Just look at their faces. Your classmates, your family members, neighbors. Do you see them as Jesus does? Do I? Pastor David Platt put it this way. You'll see it on the screen. Why is this so important to emphasize? Because the kind of courageous witness that scripture calls for will not, it cannot be a reality in our lives until we see the lost as Jesus sees them. Anything other than that and our witness becomes strictly situational when I feel like it, when it's easy. When we see them as Jesus does, precious in his sight, 
loved, hurting, harassed by the world, lost, helpless, and dead in their sin and desperate need of him. And if we're honest, let's just be honest. I don't know about you. I was so convicted this week in preparing for this because most, if not all of us, will admit that more often, let's just be real, this is where Jesus does his work through authenticity and humility. We often have more compassion for ourselves and more compassion for other things than for the lost. We often will get more worked up over an animal dying than a human being. And we want to be good stewards of creation, no question. But we will often be more in agony over the death of an animal, or God help us, the death of flowers or a plant or whatever, than for a human being who's possibly going to hell. We'll we'll often be more showing more compassion to our phone to protect it, to secure it, because, oh, God forbid there would be a crack on the screen. So we're going to get the biggest case we can get to protect it all and do all. Sure, be a good steward with your phone. But are you having more compassion for that than your neighbor who's possibly going to hell? Your car, you can't get a scratch. We're going to park it all the way and we'll make sure it's all souped up and we'll have compassion. We'll rub it down with that cloth and do all that. Sure, look after your car or your truck. But are you showing more compassion to that than your family member who could be going to hell? We getting the point? See, because here's the truth. This phone, your phone, hey, hold up your phone. It's one of the only times I'll say, hold up your phone in church. So let's all do it. Hold up your phone. Here we go. Okay, we got our phones. All right, good. All right, here's the deal. The reality I can say for each of our phones is this. It's going in the trash one day. It's going in the trash. The puppy the animal will go into the ground. But your neighbor, your coworker, your children, your spouse, your family member may be going to hell. Who are we having more, or what are we having more compassion for? They may be going to hell where they will find no rest, only the weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment for eternity. we live with that agony see that neighborhood is no longer unreached because you're there that school classroom is no longer unreached because if you're a christian you're there it's reached what are we doing with it your family is no longer unreached because you're there as am i i can't pawn it off See, often we see the lost around us, and quite often it's more about what we can do to stay in our comfort zone, keep things convenient, keep our worldly security, and stay on schedule. One pastor, many years ago, I heard him say this. He said this. "Um, People were made by God to be loved, and things were created to be used, right? But here's the danger that happens in the fall. We now love things and use people. 
There is no heart of compassion when we're using people. Meanwhile, Christ is agonizing over the very person that you and I just walked past or ignored altogether so we could stay comfy. And you may say this, you may hear this, and I don't want to leave us hanging. It's one thing to say, this is the call, this is the gap that we need Christ for, so how do we grow in it? I want this to be so helpful. You may say, how do we grow? How do I grow in possessing God's heart for the lost? It's key. So here's two, three things. Write these down. How do I grow in possessing Christ's heart for the lost? Number one, you'll see it on the screen, through his word. God's word is God's heart revealed. God's word is God's heart revealed. Look at Romans 12 verse 2 says this. Watch this. Go ahead. Put it on team. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This world cares about using people over loving people. He says, don't be conformed to that. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We tend to think that in the fall, we forget that our minds are fallen too. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is the will of God? The will of God is the heart of God. You may discern the heart of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Question, here's, here's the challenge right here that comes from this. Mind renewed, heart refreshed. God's word is living and active and it will renew our minds in the truth and show us God's heart. Donald Whitney, one of the profs at one of the seminaries I went to, he said it this way, little input of God's word results in little resemblance of God's son. I'll say it again, little input, just, hey, maybe I'll do a flyby, got more important things to do, see you later. Little input of God's word results in little resemblance of God's son. Question, are you abiding in Christ each day through his word? That uncommon communion every day. Here's why that question needs to stop us and check our hearts. Because according to the latest stats, you're ready for some more stats. Here we go. According to the latest stats, 85% 85 of professing Christians in North America don't read their Bible every day. So you look at that stat, and then you look at the 39% that actually share, it's no wonder. No wonder there's more compassion for our phones and our pets and our clothes, and cars, and homes, and for a soul. Are you and I abiding in Christ every day? It's no wonder there's so little agony and compassion for the lost, and why we're so often content to let the thought of people going to hell not bring a tear to our eyes. People were made to be loved. Things were made to be used. We must renew our minds in the truth and see God's heart. So here's the second thing. So as we get in God's word, he reveals his heart for us. Second thing is this. We grow in possessing the heart of God through prayer. This is God's heart received. 
God's heart received. Matthew 7, 7 says this. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. If you ask for the heart of God, that's something he's going to do because it's his will for you. It's his will for me. We don't have to ask, is it your will that I have your heart for the lost? The answer is always yes. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will. Look at the promise. Will be open to you. See, the heart of God, the the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God given to those who ask. This is why it's not by our might nor by our power, but by his spirit alone we can live a life of courageous witness. We have to ask him for his heart because we're so prone to wander, aren't we? Ask him for his heart for that coworker you're sitting beside or that you're on the Zoom call with, for the family member, for the strangers on the street or in Tim Hortons or wherever you are, for your neighbors. May our prayer be increasingly that of John the Baptist in John 3.30 where he says, he must increase, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Your heart in me, Christ in me, the hope of glory, you must increase. I must decrease because we can't white knuckle it. So question, are you praying fervently for the lost and for your heart for them? One of the, one of the greatest prayers I just love to pray that I would encourage you with and I sure don't pray it enough is Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Here's another one. Break my heart for who breaks yours. Break my heart. Get me past myself. Because the truth is, you and I don't belong to you and I. I don't belong to me. If you're saved in Jesus Christ, you don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your life. Glorify God with your body. You and I don't belong to ourselves. Let's not claim ownership over our lives. Say, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Thirdly, Grow in possessing God's heart for the lost through his word, which is God's heart revealed through prayer, God's heart received. And third one here, through faith. This is God's heart demonstrated through obedience, through obedience to his word. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith. God's heart demonstrated through, look at the life of Jesus, through proclamation of the gospel and demonstration of the gospel on our lips and in our lives by his power for his glory. And here's the cool thing about one of many cool things. Here's one of them of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The more we obey, the more we demonstrate with our lives the heart of God to those around us, the more we want to do it. He fans that into flame. The hardest step is always the first one. It's always the first one. Will you take it? God's heart demonstrated through faith. What's the next step for you in growing in Christ's heart for compassion for the lost? Right there. What's your next step? Pray that's helpful. A life of courageous witness will increasingly possess Christ's motive for witness. And from that final point today, you'll see it on the screen. A life of courageous witness will increasingly pray for Christ's means for witness. His means for witness. What is that? Laborers. Laborers for the harvest. A life of witness pleads, send them, Lord. 
And it means, and it pleads, send me, Lord. That's the life of courageous witness. Question, are you pleading for laborers? When's the last time we just got on our face and pled before God for laborers for the harvest? Raise up men, women, and children to go forth and proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. Look at verses 37, 38. Go back to the text. That is so good. Then he said to his disciples, so here's Jesus, move with compassion, seize the throng, the crowds. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. As a result of only 39% going, watch this, therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, after looking out on the crowds and being filled with compassion for seeing them come to salvation in him, Jesus then turns to the disciples and tells them why living lives of courageous witness matter so much. See it from the text? Because the harvest is not just a few left. Uh Uh-uh. Because the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Now, what's this harvest? Circle the word harvest. Here's here's the picture. Jesus is using an agriculture illustration here. He's using the picture of a farmer's field. You'll see it right here. There it is, filled with grain, ready for harvest. Hey, guess what? That's your neighborhood. That's your school. Ready for harvest that is ripe for gathering. Using this picture to represent the multitude of people who are ripe and ready to be gathered into the kingdom of heaven through salvation in him by his spirit at work. As they hear the gospel proclaimed and they respond to it by faith. And who are the laborers? So there's the harvest. Who are the laborers? These are workmen who bring in the harvest right? Followers of Christ who are willing to be courageous to go proclaim the gospel and see others come to faith to fulfill the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And you see in verse 38, back to the text, as a result of this lack of people willing to go, what does he command the disciples to do? It's not a suggestion. It's a command. He says, therefore, say it with me, go pray. Pray earnestly, not just when you kind of get around to it. Maybe today I'll pray for the lost, raising up some laborers. He says, pray earnestly, plead, that means urgent appeal. Lord, raise them up. Raise them up in Hope Kids right now as our teacher is unpacking the gospel for them. Raise them up in the neighborhoods. Raise them up in the homes. Raise them up in their schools. Raise them up in the workplace. Raise them up, Lord. To the Lord of the harvest, God himself, to send out more laborers. Now notice this, notice this. Watch the text. Jesus didn't say, hey guys, there's a lack of laborers, so go program earnestly to go get them. Set up a bunch of programs and go get them. That's not what he said, is it? He said to pray. Pray earnestly. Pray for men and women to be raised up and sent out to go forth into the harvest to proclaim the gospel to a world that is facing death and eternal hell without it. Pray for people in this city, loved ones. 
Pray for people in this nation. Pray for people in your school. Here it is. Pray for people in this church. That we would have a missional ecosystem in this church of laborers being pled for and raised up to go forth. And here's here's what I want to challenge us with. The Great Commission, the glory of God, is the purpose for our lives. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, that is your purpose. So I want to challenge us on this. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, send me out, and I'm willing to change location to see it happen? I'm willing to go, even if I don't know anyone there yet. If that's where you're calling me, I'm willing to change location. You say, well, what will I do for my job? See, right there is the hindrance. Jesus will provide for you. And we want to be wise and discerning in the process. Come and talk to us as elders and get counsel. Yes. But are you willing to go? Are you even willing? Before you Be careful. Before you say, oh, yeah, I'm totally willing. Be careful. Are you? But what about my family? They're all here. Are you? What about my job? Are you? Here's the other thing. I want to specifically be praying for and raise up a change of vocation vocation. You say, well, the thought of leaving my job so more people can hear the gospel is just not an option for me. Why not? You see, as we were talking as elders recently, we just sense like one of our pillars or one of our distinctives you'll hear about is that last one, strategic church planting. And we sense as elders that God is calling us to plant a church. We don't know where yet, we don't know when yet, but maybe that church plant pastor is sitting in this room right now, or listening online. Are you willing to change the vocation? Or, or, or maybe some parachurch ministry at some point to see it happen? Now, for most of us, let's be honest, for most of us, It doesn't mean a change of vocation or even location. What it means is that we need to be faithful right where we are. We're so willing often to go across the world, right? What about across the street? What about across the aisle in your workplace? What about across the aisle in the grocery store? We need to be faithful right where we're at and not keep this good news to ourselves. Why why pray for this? Because the harvest is the Lord's. Isn't that amazing? Did you see that? His harvest. The Lord of the harvest. The harvest is the Lord's, and he alone knows the exact state of it. And here's the thing about what that means. God is God, and God is not looking for your input or mine on who we think will respond. Well, I can't go to that person because they're just too hostile. Really? Who made you and I the Lord of the harvest? Any ideas? Well, I can't go to that person because, you know, I've shared it with them a few times. They just seem disinterested. Don't make yourself the Lord of the harvest. There's only one Lord of the harvest. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows exactly the state of the hearts of the people that he's put right in your path to proclaim the gospel to. There's only one Lord of the harvest. 
He alone is the means for sending people out and bringing people in. And we are not called to save. Only he's the Lord of the harvest. So, so many of us get crippled in evangelism because we're like, well, I have to have all the right words and I have to be the one to save them and I'm going to take their salvation on myself. Look at the text and be free of that fear. There's only one Lord of the harvest and it isn't you or me. Our job, our commission is to, say, is to serve and so not to save. We're just the laborers, and he chooses to do his work through us as we boldly proclaim the gospel to those around us, dependent on him, not by might nor by our power, but by his spirit. And here, here, why do we pray right here on the screen? We pray because God sends them out to the harvest, and we pray because God alone brings them in from the harvest. And you may, you may say this, well, why do we even need to pray if he's the Lord of the harvest? He's just sovereign. Has he chosen who's going to be saved? Why do we even need to pray anyway? Why do we even need to go? I mean, if he's the Lord of the harvest, because God, this just kiboshes that whole idea of we don't need to be evangelism. We don't need to be evangelizing in our lives courageously because, listen, God in his infinite wisdom The plan of salvation before the foundation of the world was ever established decided he was going to use you and I to see his plan of salvation become fulfilled. That's why we witness, because he decided it. See, a life of witness pleads, send them, Lord. Send me, Lord. Are you pleading for more laborers? Here, are, are you pleading for more laborers even in this church as we have the various ministries? Are we pleading, raise them up, Lord, to see more people encounter with the gospel, serving in the different ministries so we can see that reach increase? Are you praying for that and are you willing to go and step in? See, we have to realize this. Laborers aren't effective if they're not in the field. You say, I'm a laborer. Great, are you bringing in the harvest? Are you out in the field doing the work? Nah. Labors aren't effective if they're not in the field. And if you're a follower of Christ, you and I are the... Hey, this struck me this morning in final review. Did you get this? If you're saved in Jesus Christ, you and I are the answer to so many other saints' prayers to raise up laborers to go. We're the answer to that prayer that someone else prayed maybe decades ago, to see Ottawa, Ontario, Canada on fire for the gospel. We're the answer. Are, are, are we, send me, Lord. The answer to that prayer is you. No follower of Christ is called to be a spectator, but is called to be a laborer, a gospel proclaimer, available, ready to respond as the Lord directs our path and brings people around us to share the gospel with. And I want to encourage us with this. You may be a little intimidated by this. Can I just encourage you with two things? Number one, God will not command from you what he's not first willing to do in you. God has given you all you need in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, he's given you the power of God literally inside of you to empower you with the words and the heart and the strength and the perseverance and the love for those people. That's the first thing. And secondly, don't complicate the witness. You know, when you're, when you're farming, 
Bringing in the harvest isn't that complicated. You take a sickle and you go, next. Keep it simple. Be prayed up and step up. Start making those connections with people in your neighborhood. You don't have to jump right to, hey, hey, you're going to die without Jesus on the day with your neighbor. He'll look at you and be like, you're weird. You just go and start striking up the conversation. I was talking to one of my neighbors today. He saw me unloading hockey equipment on the back of my van. He's loading hockey equipment in his van. I'm like, hey, how's it going? You're playing. What are you, where are you guys going today? And he's like, oh, you're coming out, Ray, and, and this. And we start talking, just connecting in our new neighborhood, just bridging the gap. Just start there. And then over time, get more personal. How's your family? How are you doing? And, and here's a challenge that we're facing right now. But thanks to the grace of God, bring Jesus in. Thanks to the grace of God, he's sustaining us. You know, when you have four boys, it's pretty, pretty easy to have a gospel on them. They're like, I don't know how you do that. And it's just like, by the grace of God, what do you mean? There you go. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> right? And you tell them the testimony. And then you share your testimony about your life before Christ and how you received him. And then, and then your life since coming to Christ, how he's changed you and how much he loves that person. You show them the problem, the sin, and then you show them the Savior. Oh, come on. Let's go, church. Let's do this. You don't need to wait for some. Here you go. Put that field back up there. When you see that, you don't need to wait for some big evangelistic outreach. Well, when the church does a program, then we'll do it. Listen, listen, loved ones. Not, look at the text of Jesus right here. 99% of evangelism takes place in the day-to-day. On the bus, in the carpool, in the workplace, in the classroom, in the staff room, in the family, in the neighborhood, day-to-day interactions, sharing lives together. Loved ones, let's go. Because, big idea repeated as we close out, Jesus loves the lost, and we must witness courageously to them. And he says in John 4, 35, the fields are white for harvest. The fields are white, and God is ready to gather them in. Does that excite you? God is ready to gather them in. And he's ready to use you and I to do that. But will we respond in faith and say, send me, Lord. Send them, Lord. And pray earnestly for others to do the same in living lives of courageous witness that possess Christ's motive of compassion and pray for Christ's means more laborers, not by our might or by our power, but by his spirit. Scared world needs a fearless church. Let's go, loved ones. You in? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Before you start putting your you know, books around, listen, I want you to keep your Bibles open to this text, and you'll see it on the screen right now. That's the outline for today's sermon, right there. And so we're going to follow Christ's command right now. And we're going to have a time of corporate prayer where we get into groups of four or five, and I want to encourage you, if you're around someone that you don't know, go and sit with them. Introduce yourself groups of four or five, maybe six, whatever, and we are going to pray earnestly for this right here, just as Jesus commands. Lord, give us your heart of compassion for the lost and pray for means. Lord, raise up laborers, raise up me and plead with him, all right? We're going to the throne room of grace. Do a quick introduction. Don't spend a lot of time talking and let's go. Let's take five minutes. Come on.